uh, it's good to be here. And we're, uh, we've come to the end, if you like, of our value series, although a value series doesn't actually end. It just goes into your lives and then you use it and, and then off we go. And that's very good. But if you've got your Bible still open, just leave them uh, open there. Matthew 28, and if you coordinated enough just to put something in it, 2 Corinthians 5, do that. We're just going to kind of, we're going to be in these passages today, looking at the, at the, what Jesus has for us in that, and, and looking at our final value this morning, and that is the mission of multiplication. That is that we are lovingly motivated into the mission of making disciples. And that is simply making more people who love Jesus. Who have an intimate and perpetually deepening relationship with him. And that that relationship is secured in the truth of the scriptures. And that it pours out in worship. That's what, that's what making disciples is. Introducing people to Jesus securing their faith in the truth of the scriptures and then out of that worship. Like, let's go home. Oh no, I like, I like to talk for a lot longer than that. We're just reproducing our experience, our, our experience of Jesus into, we're taking that story and, and we're putting it into the lives of others. We're just sharing it. Like, that's all there is to it. When I was a kid growing up in northeast Victoria... Uh, in a little location known as Ben Valley. It wasn't really a town or, or anything. It was more like a dirt road that had a few houses uh, dotted along it. It was sort of like this um, satellite suburb of Yakandanda, which was another small town. But my brother and I, we would, we would get home from school and we'd just smash down a box of wheat bix and then we'd do something crazy. We'd go and disappear into this thing known as Outside. And, and we would be in this strange environment until dark. We wouldn't come back in. And our mum, strangely enough, wasn't too worried about us. We were just out there tearing the place to pieces. We didn't have phones. We didn't have devices. We didn't have Instagram or Snapchat or anything like that. We just had our imaginations. So two young brothers and their three mates outside with their imaginations. No regulations. No one going, don't climb that tree, that's too dangerous, don't do that, that could kill you, don't blow that up, that's not a good idea. I don't think Mrs. Jones's cat wants to look like that. No one, no one saying anything like that to us. Well, what could go wrong, eh? It was a world without limits and our experience of it was regulated by our imaginations. But it was driven by our desire to be involved in a bigger story. In, in some big narrative, we're out there. We lived in this other thing called the 80s. I don't know if you lived through it, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It was hectic. Back then, the world was going to end due to a nuclear holocaust. You remember that? That was before global warming and all this other stuff. We were all going to still might if Donald Trump gets in. Um, it, it could come back, and he probably will take us back to the 80s. Anyway, I'm going to start on that. But as kids... Living in the dwindling kind of shadow of the Cold War, we'd brought into the narrative of our day, if you like, of our generation. And, and it was played out in, in movies. It was, you know, all the movies, movies like Red Dawn. I'm not talking about that poxy remake that came out with Liam Hensworth in it. Like, I don't know what that is. 
I'm talking about the classic 1984 one with Patrick Swayze in it. Who's seen it? Yes. You're killing the moment, bro. Russia, with their sinister power, wanted to end the West's freedom and all our ideals that were going to come and invade. And we, we, that was our world and that was our narrative that we lived in. And so we wanted to be part of that. So in our spare time, in the outside, we had tunnels and forts, like uh, armories scattered all throughout the valley, everywhere you went. Uh, we could be fully armed with clay bombs and uh, homemade mortars and slingshots and some pretty wild-looking kind of weapons that we'd made up in a shed out the back of a farm. We had traps, like holes in the grounds with spikes in them and, and, and tops over them. So, yeah, that, that's your pastor. Who did the background? Who was on the search committee and did the background check? <laughs> what do you got? Uh. Anyway, we dreamed of being part of something bigger, bigger than ourselves. We dreamed of taking part in some kind of heroic mission. We dreamed of being drawn into this battle, this epic saga. Mainly our planning and our dreams were taken out on the school bus that used to go past. The Russians never invaded, much to our dismay. But like every other human being that walks this planet, we had this relentless kind of desire to be involved in something greater than ourselves. And that took shape for us in the idea that we could be some kind of rebellion against uh, an invading force and reclaiming Ben Valley, you know, because that's where you, if you were a Russian army invading Australia, you'd worry about Melbourne or Sydney, you'd go to Ben Valley. That's where you'd touch down. And we would be involved in, in getting it back. And we had lives of grand adventures lived in our imaginations. These days we really don't go outside too much. And yet we are without a doubt the most entertained culture and generation uh, in human history. At least, at least in the Western context anyway. Granted, you're not really allowed to blow anything up anymore or no one's ever happy about putting cats in compromising positions, but we still have more to do, more to see. There has never been so much, we've never been so connected. There has never been so much at our fingertips. And yet, with all our phones and laptops and devices, cinemas and virtual experiences, we are the most quickly bored generation in human history. We, we, we just get bored. Like, if we have to spend 30 seconds with ourselves, we're like, oh, what's happening in the world? Mm, mm. Because we long for something greater than ourselves. We long to be a part of something, some great undertaking, some great rescue, even a great romance perhaps, I don't know, that changes our world. We long for a great mission. That's why we love to go and see movies like Avengers and all these. I love to go and see them anyway. Uh, some of us can get lost on online games, you know, fantasy world, being part of some great mission. Some of us, you know, like epic love stories. Um, there's some out there, I'm sure, and some of you are interested in them. Yep, who knows what they are. But there are people living vicariously and virtually through these other realities. 
Matt Chandler makes this observation. Like kids creating and competing in afternoon conquests, we still want to be involved in a bigger undertakings, bigger challenges, bigger things that make a bigger difference. We long for the grand mission. One of the greatest writers of uh, sort of fantasy fiction writing, uh, adventure sort of stuff, was John R. R. Tolkien. He wrote a relatively popular story based around Middle Earth called The Hobbit. Does anyone know how that? This is not. Does anyone know how that story came about? The Hobbit. He was. Stop the clock. This is not part of my time. He was. He's grading. He's grading um, essays. He's a teacher, and. In one of the essays was a blank piece of paper and he went, oh, and he put it down on the desk and for whatever reason he wrote, there lived in a hole in the ground a hobbit. And then out of that came the book. and the tri- Anyway, there you go. But Tolkien, <laughs> who knew something about bigger, um, this longing for the grand narrative to be involved in, in a bigger story, Having a conversation with C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnian Chronicles, says this. uh, The reason why we want to be part of something bigger is because God has imprinted these souls, these themes, sorry, on our souls. This is the observation Tolkien makes of life. You see, we are made to be part of God's unfolding story. That's what we were designed for. That's what we were made for. And if you've been in this series, every week I take you back where? To God, to Genesis. Why? Because it's got to begin with God and and what he wanted. And even at Genesis, uh, before the fall, we still had a grand plan. God still had a narrative for us. Take my image. Take this uh, knowledge of me and push it out. Subdue the world. Uh, take this story out into the borders of the world. That was, that's what we were created to do before this uh, mission of discipleship ever came along. We're created for it. We long for it. And when sin entered the world through an uprising, a rebellion, it fractured everything, sent everything into chaos and disorder. And, am- and the ambassadors, the storytellers, those who were meant to go and talk and speak and live out the glory of God and point back to him, became insurrectionists and glory thieves. But God has a rescue plan to restore his glory in which he would send a redeemer who would come and lead a rebellion against the rebellion, Jesus. There is no greater battle, no greater love story than the redemptive drama of God pursuing a rebellious creation hell-bent on destroying itself. There is no greater climax to any story ever written than the story of God's love and justice revealed in Jesus Christ taking hold of our lives and renewing them with eternal purpose and bringing us into his great drama and his great story. Whether we know it or not, the biggest something of all, the great epic the universe will ever know is the unfolding drama of God reconciling all things back to himself in Christ Jesus. And we're invited in. And the amazing thing is that God is calling us all to participate in this story. God is calling us all to participate in his reconciling all things back to him. To lead people back to him. And not to be the hero of the story, but to 
play a casting role in it. So far in our values, we've seen our values sort of come around us and help us to live as Christians the life that God has called us to live in community and with each other, and there they are. And now what we are looking at, or, and, we've, and we've looked at how we are to cultivate these values into our lives in such a way, and we looked at this uh, last week, that we would become a city on a hill, a culturally redemptive community, city on a hill, light, salt to the world. And now the one thing that Jesus expects us all to do with all this wonderful change in our lives and this new relationship is to make disciples is to be his ambassadors, his storytellers, reproducing in others what has been brought into life in us, a saving and personal relationship with Jesus. You see, the mission of the church is not to build buildings. The mission of the church is, 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 not, is not to kind of grow some kind of empire. The mission of the church is to take the story of Jesus and put it into the lives of others. And the phrase that Jesus uses at the end of this gospel of Matthew is go make disciples, go make other people who are like you but not you because we're not pointing people to us, we're pointing people to Jesus. For around three years Jesus poured himself into the hearts of 12 men making clear in their hearts and their heads uh, this, this crazy revelation that he is God in the flesh, that He is the one who has come to make all things new, that He has come to deal with sin, that He has come to restore humanity back to God. Can you imagine what that's like, walking around the guy saying that kind of stuff? And all the things that they had to work against, all their Jewish heritage, all their cultural understandings, and Jesus for three years is just slowly working away at these things until they get to a point where they recognize Him as God in the flesh because He's been discipling them. So Jesus kind of gives us this model and it's relationships. It's just walking roads with people and speaking scriptural truth into their lives. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus now stands before them, raised from the dead. Jesus tells the people who have come into a person, his disciples into a personal relationship with him, that all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This is his statement, standing there, raised from the dead. No one's arguing with this because he's a guy who during his life did things like cured blindness. People who were born blind, he cured them. He cured leprosy, sickness, he paraplegia, mental illness, and he did all this with just words. He healed people's oppression, spiritual oppression with words, just spoke. He said to storms, stop, and they did. He said to, dead, to, to a dead man, stop being dead, and he came out and was alive. And now he's saying the limitations, if you want, that applied throughout my ministry are no longer applied. Things have gone back to the way they were when I was the eternal word that created the world, when I was the king of the universe. That's now me. God has restored changed. God has restored my glory, and all authority in heaven and earth are mine. And no one's arguing with him because he has just brought himself back from the dead. So it really doesn't matter what Jesus says next. I've said this to you before. It really does not matter what he says next. He says, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And I just brought myself back from the dead, so you know who you're talking to. So if he says Stand on your head until you turn purple and into a cow or something or other. You just go and do it. 
That's ridiculous, but if he said it, you would do it. But here's what he says. The sovereign king of the universe says to us, go make disciples. The church followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, have one job, if you like, to go and reproduce themselves. Go and multiply And not just amongst your family and not just amongst your friends and the people you like, not just amongst your own race, but across all lines, across all lines. Look, I don't care if it's a Jew, a Gentile, a Roman Greek, uh, some dude from Africa, some guy from the British Isles, whatever. Jesus is saying, go make disciples with these people. This is a universally focused vision. All nations, all people groups. The scope of works for the church is to make disciples. The job site is anywhere you find God has placed you. This is what is meant in the go. And when we looked at Matthew's gospel, we looked at this, didn't we? And we understand that the go is better, more literally translated as you go. As you go about the normal rhythms of your life. You don't have to change anything about your world. The only thing that had to change was your relationship with God through Christ. And then once that changes, once you've become a Christian and you've been discipled, then just go back. You see? Jesus didn't push his disciples off first to Bible college or some other thing. He pushed them back into their families and into their towns as you go. They had to go and share the story of God's love to us in Jesus. That's, that's what he's telling them to do. For the disciples, they received this from Jesus himself. That's, that's why they're qualified to be apostles. For us, we encounter Jesus in the scripture. That's where the truth of Jesus is found. That's where we find Jesus now, in the scriptures. And, and you're not doing discipling unless it's coming out of the scriptures. Okay? So listen, discipling is not, hey, come and look at me. Come, come, let me tell you about how good my life is or anything like that. Discipling is, hey, come and let me tell you about my Jesus and what he means and who he is and what he does. We are not the heroes of the stories when it comes to discipling. Jesus is. That's, that's, why, that's why when we disciple people, we baptize them not in, oh, who, who, who discipled you? Oh, you know, it was Mason. Oh, well, okay, in the name of Mason. No. In the name of the triune God, in the name of truth revealed about this God, we baptize because you're identifying with the witness, the testimony of Jesus from God. And that's who you're identifying with and that's who we baptize you in. Here's how it played out in my life. I am a Christian today because other Christians lived out this command in their lives. Some of you have heard this story before. Don't go to sleep. It's a cool story. I like it. Stay with me. My mum, who constantly... I had a mum, as perhaps we all do. She constantly prayed for me and sought sought always to be defining life and its events through gospel-based realities. Do you know, she kept contextualizing it in the gospel story. It's tough. It's a tough go when you're a single mum. And a single mum of four kids. And by and large, these kids are angry at stuff. And particularly me. Angry at God, mainly. 
And where is he? And what's he doing? And why does my life look like this if you're a good, loving God? But my mom kept going, you know what? The, your environment is not a reflection of God's love. My mom graciously kept putting God before us as I grew up. I grew up hearing about a loving God. Unfortunately, my experience of life kind of worked hard against this reality. Into the field of play came other people. People just going about their lives with a gospel mindset, carrying the story of Jesus with them. A family friend who grabbed me and put me into a working environment, a, a kind of farmer builder dude. Said, come on, let's let's go and do let's go and build a windmill. And and we just got chatting. And in such an environment that I didn't feel like I was being interrogated or anything. And he told me God's not indifferent or unconcerned with your story, but rather God's the kind of God who's intimately aware of it. And and, and so much so that he's come in person. It wasn't anything too heavy, and he wasn't kicking my head in about my lifestyle. He, he, he was just kind of throwing Jesus up against it and saying, look, how's, it, how, how's life going? Would you like to know about my Jesus? Nothing too heavy, just biblical truth, the gospel. He was, and do you know what? He was teaching me sound doctrine about God because he'd soaked his life with the Bible. He knew the word of God. And now he's, he's not literally sitting there with a Bible while I'm fixing a windmill. So, Mason, so, did you know? No. Like that happened in other spaces, but he's talking it out to me. He's discipling me. That's what discipling is. Just taking the story of Jesus into the lives of other people. I had a mate who actually kind of shot once, so he's got like no investment into me. He's probably thinking, you shot me, dude. Why would I care about you? But he's a little bit, he was a good guy. He was a little bit like the early followers of Jesus, though. But he'd answer some questions, but when, but when the questions outrun him, what he did was he took me to people who could answer the questions. And... Um, he took me, he invited me to a Bible study where this guy was running a Bible study. He kind of, he, he kind of duped me a little bit. Like, he thought, oh, maybe the Bible's not quite enough for Mason. I'll tell him that there's some good looking girls at this Bible study. And I'll get him there, and it did. I don't endorse that mode of um, evangelism because I have daughters. I rail hard against it. But anyway, there I go. I so said, he's, he's playing his part. Nothing too crazy there by this guy. Then a man, the guy who ran this Bible study, try and keep it together. Because when I think of this guy and what he did in my life, Raditor Brook, you know, this, this guy is tough, hard as nails kind of guy. He's a bricklayer by trade. World War II, three years behind enemy lines. Uh, fighting with the partisans, you know, he's got this incredible story about his life, about his his time uh, in occupied lands. But do you know what his greatest story was? Like he would, how Jesus saved him. Like he had some off the chain stories about World War Two. But his favorite and greatest story was how Jesus saved him, and he would open his Bible. And tell us about God and teach us sound doctrine. And I will keep coming back to that word sound doctrine because unless the story we tell is grounded in the words of these pages, then we're not discipling anybody, okay? And each week, open his Bible and gather us around and he'd be discipling us, 
telling us about Jesus, telling us about God's love for us, as, just as he went on his go. And then one day he just sort of said to me, Hey, Mason, what are you doing about Jesus? Like, you know, we've been chatting for a while now. What are you doing about Jesus? And you know, he didn't get an answer out of me. But that question, it did something in me. You see, these people were all in the normal rhythms of life. And they all carried the gospel with them. They all carried the story of God's love and Jesus with them. And they just, they just spoke it into my life. And they spoke it into other lives when it was appropriate. And here's what they did. They just kind of stepped back. Realizing they weren't the hero of the story. They stepped back and they let God do the work in my life. Because that's what he does. It's not us. We speak the story. We don't save anybody. And they stepped back. And he, he's, what are you doing with Jesus? And he stepped back. No other person was around when I became a Christian. I didn't walk down an aisle. I didn't say a sinner's prayer. You might be surprised. The sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. It doesn't exist. I just had my heart melted by God so that I felt an affection for Him rather than fear, shame and anger. It was the strangest thing. The position of my heart changed. Why? People had been discipling me. People had been putting into my life, putting into my life, putting into my life, and then they stepped back, and then God just went bang. And that's how it works. It's God's play for one life, one soul. All these different characters coming in and out in various scenes of this drama. What were they doing? They were making disciples. They were planting the story of Jesus into the life of another person. They were participating in the greatest epic drama story going around. It is the craziest thing, but it is the grace of God that he uses people who have been captured by the gospel as ambassadors of his glorious new life to point people to what God is doing through Jesus. Like he entrusts us with the story. That's a, that's a God with no kind of, um, I don't know, hang-ups. That's not the end of my story. Or God's pursuit of my heart. If anything, it was just the beginning. Here's what we've got to remember about discipling. It's not about getting someone to a line. It's not about like an event, a decision. Wow, there's another one. Great. And then we go off and we find the next victim. It's a journey. It's about doing life with people. Into the script came a lad called Steve Jarlett. He took hold of a few very fragile young Christians. Like we'd been Christians for five minutes. We knew the love of God, but we had no idea about how to live a life in view of that, like what it meant to be a Christian. And he got hold of us and he just kind of walked through the Bible with us and what it meant and how these things impact our lives. So that we could ask questions, explore God's word with him. Safe environment, what was this guy doing? He was making disciples. He was continuing the work of deepening our relationship with Jesus. As I said, making disciples is not merely about getting someone across some spiritual line, but about relationships that deepen and strengthen our relationship with Jesus. 
He was the guy who said, while Christianity is personal, it sure ain't private. Time to identify with Jesus and I was baptised. I was baptised in the CYC Dam at Back Creek Yakandanda. You guys think it's hardcore to get baptised in August in that water out there. There are fish in the CYC Dam that Jonah wouldn't swim with. It's, it's hardcore. Then along came a man by the name of David West, a warrant officer in the army. He had a real heart for the gospel and people and personal growth in Christ. And he grabbed me and he just said, let's talk about how we talk to others about Jesus. And we just kind of, we'd sit down with a Bible verse and we'd just go, how would you explain this to someone? And away we'd go. And we'd sit there fascinated at how at the love of God in this book. What's this guy doing? He's discipling me. He's reproducing the love that he has for Christ and the scriptures and he's, he's, he's growing it in me and, 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 and leading me to the place where I can encounter it and grow in it. He's discipling me. There is this cast of people around me pouring sound doctrine into my heart, teaching me about Jesus and who he is and how we are to live, life, live a life that follows him. And they've not treated me like a statistic or an event, but compelled, and here it is, compelled by their own experience of Christ in their lives, they want to reproduce that in someone else. They want to reproduce that in me. I want to ask you this morning, is there a greater adventure, epic drama that you could be involved in? To be ambassadors of God's saving work in the personal lives of people. That is what the essence of the mission of multiplication is. It is how God has chosen to call people, to reconcile people back to himself, one person at a time, and calling them into the great drama of human history and eternal relationships with him that they might take their place in it, that they might disciple others. That's the mission of the church. Through his people, it's incredible. And I think I'd be pretty confident that that's how most of us came to Christ. Somebody spoke. Somebody took time to pour into our lives who Jesus is. It's about reproducing our faith in others. People are going out and... um, growing and multiplying their faith in other people. The Apostle Paul captures this in his second letter to Corinthians, and we read it this morning, and I'm just going to go from verse 17. Therefore, if any, anyone is a new creation, and anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, the old has passed away, the old life has gone, you are a completely new creature. And all this from God, that's why we step back. We don't save anyone, we disciple, but God does the saving. Through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's incredible. God has entrusted this ministry to us. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation. Paul is talking about the Christian life being pressed back into Chelsea and into Bond Beach and into Frankston and Parkdale and Mordialic and Mentone. He is talking about taking this relationship that you have with Jesus and sitting down with your neighbour and having a cup of coffee with them. 
It is about taking the story of Jesus and depositing it in the hearts of others, multiplying your faith in the lives of those around you. You are sharing your story, your experience of the beautiful grandeur of a life now lived in relationship with God. And Jesus says, as you go, reproduce your faith in others. Paul calls it the work of ambassadors on Jesus' behalf. One thing is certain, though, this was not a suggestion. This was not like, oh, well, you know, if you can be bothered, if you've got time. It was a command. In our passage from Matthew's Gospel, the verb in there, the controlling verb, uh, for those of you who do English, I don't, these little participles that modify verbs and nouns and things, the one with the most force in this passage is make disciples. It's like if you are a Christian, you will be a discipler. Why? Because you've been discipled, hopefully. And if you haven't, put your hand up because we'll get around you. You don't need a degree. You don't need to be specially gifted. No one in my story was. No one in my story had been to Bible college. No one in my story was Billy Graham. Just a single mum, a farmer, builder, a student, ex-World War I veteran, youth worker, electronics engineer from Ramey. And all they did was share their personal relationship with Jesus as they went, you know, as you go. Here's what I know, guys. If we're doing this faithfully, if we're being obedient to Jesus and we're taking his story and we're placing it into the lives of others, how will we know that we're doing this appropriately? How will we know that this is that we're on the right track? Discipled, people who have been discipled become worshippers. That's what we see here in Matthew twenty eight, seventeen. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. They've had their discipling over the last three years. These were men who had been with Jesus. They'd been discipled by Jesus for three years. And now they saw him raised from the dead and it all fell into place. This story, this message, this, this gospel fell into place. And when they realized who Jesus was, they worshipped. That's one of our values, renewed worship. When our hearts go from worshipping um, things that God has made to worshipping God. The goal, if you like, of our disciples is to lead people to Jesus, let him reveal himself to them and their hearts moved from different forms of rebellion to affection and worship. And isn't it incredible that God asks us to play a role in that? I mean, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, says Jesus. You know what? If I want followers... Can have a few. But what I want is melted hearts. People who have come into a real understanding and relationship with me by other people who have encountered it and understood what it is to know me. Uh, making disciples. Is there any greater epic drama to give your life to or to spend your time preparing for? There is, if you're reading the Word of God, that is not wasted time. That is investing into becoming a disciple maker. If you're coming to church and you're, and you're kind of 
with other Christians and, 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 and hearing God's word spoken and you're edifying each other and building each other up in a community in Christ, that is not wasted time. That's part of being discipled. Who knows who God has placed on your street to come to know him? I'm the pastor of your church today because some pretty insignificant people obeyed Jesus. Jesus.